once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. It's good to be with you all this morning. This is going to be fun. We're starting a, a new series and the series really comes out of this. Um, if you're anything like me, I like things that are manageable. I, I like things that I can get my hands around and that I can control, and that applies to pretty much everything. I, I want a manageable child who's going to wake up only at the times I want her to wake up and is going to respond to me the way I want her to respond. I want a, a manageable wife who's, who's going to hear me, love me, care for me the way I want to be heard and loved and cared for. I want a, a job that's manageable, a life that's manageable. And if I'm really honest, and, and I said the thing that probably most of us feel but don't want to say out loud, there's a part of me that wants a manageable Jesus. A, a Jesus who gives me what I want but doesn't demand too much, who doesn't ask too much of me, who doesn't disrupt my life more than, uh, than I would want, who lets my plans continue exactly as they would be. And every single one of us, in some ways, we have taken Jesus, we have taken this Savior, and we have put him in a box. It's a nice box. It's a, a manageable box. And we like to keep him right there because we do not want our lives disrupted. But here's the problem. A manageable Jesus is not a sufficient Jesus. A manageable Jesus is not a Jesus who can deal with real sin. He's not a Jesus who can deal with real suffering. He's not a Jesus who can deal with real brokenness. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying from the very beginning of the book to the very end is that is not the real Jesus. The real Jesus is greater than we could ever imagine. He cannot fit in a box. He is greater and more glorious than we could dream. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, he is not safe, but he is good. And what we want to do over these next few weeks is we are going to take Jesus out of the box and we are going to hold him up and see him from every angle. We're going to take the same text and we are going to twist and turn it and look at it so that we would see and know and delight in more of Jesus than when we started. And see a Jesus who speaks and saves and reigns and ultimately a Jesus who overcomes. And here's what it says. This is our text for the next three weeks. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down. At the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels, to which of the angels did God ever say, you were my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. This is God's word, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Uh, hungry to hear your voice. Lord, I, I confess that my words are not adequate. 
Lord, I, I'm, we're dealing with a subject here. We are dealing with a reality here that I don't have the words for. And so, Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would take these words and you would take this text and through it, Lord, you would make your son marvelous in our eyes. That, Lord, we would hear the voice that shatters the cedars. We would hear the voice that causes the rain to fall and the sun to rise and set. That we would hear the voice of the one who says, let there be light and there was light and who himself can speak life into our dead hearts. We pray, speak this morning. Use this time to point us towards yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm a film guy. I love movies. I've loved them for years. And one of my favorites is this little known, not very often seen, Christopher Nolan movie called Memento. Uh, Memento is the movie. uh, It's a movie about a guy named Leonard Shelby whose wife has been murdered and who every day wakes up on a quest to find her murderers. He wants to bring them to justice. He wants to make sure that vengeance is paid. He wants to be the one who pulls the trigger. But the catch is this. Every 15 minutes, Leonard Shelby's brain resets because he's had a traumatic brain injury. And so every 15 minutes, he could be in the car on the way to find the guy, and he will forget who he is with, he will forget what he is doing, he will forget why he is there, and the only way he can make sense of the world is through all of these Polaroid photographs that he has taken and written notes on. And the one thing that he is sure in his life that is absolutely reliable are the clues and the facts that he has tattooed to his chest. Facts that whenever he begins to be uncertain of what is true and what is right, facts that he will open his shirt and look in the mirror and he will see them one more time and say, this is right, this is true, this is the way that I should go. And what makes the movie unique is that Christopher Nolan sets it up so that you as the audience are right there with him. Because the beginning of the movie is the end of the story and the end of the movie is the beginning of the story. So that you are sitting right there with Leonard Shelby and asking, who can I trust? Who can I believe? What do I know? What can I build my life on until the very last scene, the very beginning of the story, you suddenly find that the one piece of truth, the one thing that he thought was reliable and you thought was reliable, it actually is anything but. And the entire trek, the entire journey, the entire quest for vengeance, all of it has been built on a lie. It's an unnerving movie. Because in so many ways, it reflects the very world that we inhabit. Because we live in a world where we have access to more information than ever before, but if we're really honest, we're actually less certain of what is true. We have fake news, fake friends, fake people. We have... uh, post-truth realities where everybody says whatever I think is true is true for me and it may not be true for you. We live in this world where there are all these competing voices, all of them saying, I know what is true, I know what you should build your life on, I know what is reality, I know what you should rely on, I know where should be the foundation your feet stand on, and we hear all of them and as limited, finite creatures, every one of us is going, you know what, I just don't know. I have things that I think are generally reliable, But when push comes to shove, I don't know if I could stake my life on them. And nowhere does that agnosticism show itself more clearly than when it comes to God. Because when suffering comes, 
as it has come to the people in the book of Hebrews. All of us are forced to ask that question. Is this true? And am I willing to stake my life on this? What the writer of Hebrews says is there is one voice. There is one voice in the midst of all the world, one voice in the midst of all the others that you must tune your ears to. Because the one who speaks, he does not just speak the truth, he is the truth. Jesus Christ himself, he says, this is a voice that you have to hear because what he speaks is salvation. As he says in Hebrews 4, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And here's why he says we should listen. He says, first, this one who speaks, he is God's son. He says, in the midst of this world, where everywhere there is confusion and everywhere there is doubt, God spoke. In verse 1, he says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. I mean, those two words should stop all of us in our tracks. It is saying, God has not left himself without a witness. God has not left us in the darkness. He has not left us in our agnosticism. God has come and he has made himself known. It says, in many times and in many ways, to our fathers, through the prophets. God has been speaking to his people, calling to his people, declaring to them who he is and what he desires and what he is going to do. But what the writer of Hebrews says is, in these last days, at this moment, God has spoken in a way that is greater still. He says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He says, this son, this is the one to whom all the prophets were pointing. If they were the pieces of a puzzle, he is the whole. He is the sum total of all the parts. He is the one whose voice you have to hear above every other. And if we're going to understand what he's getting at here, we have to go back to the words of Jesus himself. In Matthew 21 and in Mark 12, Jesus tells this parable. It's a strange parable. It's the story of a man who buys a field and builds a vineyard. He builds the walls, he digs the well, he plants the vines, he gets it all ready to go, and it is this beautiful, wonderful work of art, and then he gets called away to a far country. And so he lends out this vineyard, he gets some tenants, and he says, I'll make a deal with you. You can stay here, you can live in this beautiful thing that I have made, and you can enjoy its fruits, so long as when I send you my messengers, you give me what I am owed. You give me the fruit of my labors, you give me the fruit of my creation. And the tenants go, that sounds like a good deal to me. We get to live in a place we didn't build, we get to enjoy its fruits, and all we have to do is give you what is already rightfully yours. And so a few years go by, and finally the landlord says, I think I want some of my harvest. And so he sends one of his messengers, a servant. And the tenants, they see the servant coming, and they've gotten pretty comfortable in the vineyard. And they decide, you know, we kind of like all these things. We don't really want to share it. And so we're going to beat the tar out of this guy and make sure that he knows he's not wanted here. That we don't want the landlord, we want his vineyard, we don't want him. And so they beat the servant and they send him away. The landlord sends a second servant. 
And this time, the, the tenants are sitting there, and they see the servant coming. They think, well, clearly he didn't get the message. We're going to have to be a little stronger this time. So this servant they kill. And then the landlord sends a third messenger. And the tenants go, you know, we have to make sure this time that he really gets how serious we are that we want this vineyard for ourselves. And so when this servant shows up, they don't just kill him. They stone him. They make it slow. They make it hurt because they do not want another messenger to come. But for some reason, for a reason that it defies logic and defies sense, this landlord keeps sending messengers. And then he does something more inexplicable still. It says he sent his son. Not a son he hated. Not a son he didn't like. No, what Mark 12 says is this was his only son. His beloved son. The one who was the heir of the vineyard. The one who represented him. His flesh. His blood. The one who had all of his authority. And what struck me this morning as I was thinking about this text. What struck me is how absolutely strange that action is. Uh, my daughter woke up early with me this morning. Uh, she's 20 months old. She's, you know, can say a few words, and she just loves basically roughhousing with me. And so sometimes in the morning, she'll come down, and she'll sit on my chest and start, you know, hit me in the face, and I'll be throwing her in the air. And this morning, as I was holding her and thinking through this, it suddenly struck me. The father of this son, he is making himself vulnerable in a way that I don't think I could. Because he is taking the one that he sees as absolutely most precious. The one who is dearer to him than any other. And he is sending him to men that he already knows hate him so much they have killed his servants. He is making himself vulnerable. He is opening himself up to a pain the likes of which we could not comprehend. And he is doing it because he does not hate these men. He cares for them. He's pleading with them, hear my voice. And what makes the parable so shocking is that the tenants see the son. They know him to be the son, and they kill him anyways. And Jesus ends the parable going, what do you think the landlord should do to those tenants? And his audience's response is he should kill them as quickly as possible. What the writer of Hebrews says, is that parable? That's a reality that we all inhabit. Because the God who formed this world, the God who made us and formed us and created us and knitted us together in our mother's womb, he has been sending his messengers he has been sending his prophets to a people who claimed they wanted to know the truth, who claimed they wanted to hear his voice, and he has sent them again and again and again and again and again. And now in these last days, he has sent to us, not just the heir of a vineyard, but the heir of all things, his only beloved son. And God in Christ has made himself vulnerable before us. 
He has opened himself up to be rejected because ultimately, the way we respond to that son, that is the way we respond to his father. The way we treat that son, ultimately, that is where every single one of our destinies hangs. We have to listen because the one who speaks, he is not a prophet. He is not just another man. He is the son himself. And he's not just the son. What the writer of Hebrews says is this one, he is the very glory of God. In verse 3, he says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. When I was in high school, uh, I was a wrestler. And the guys, after our practices, we would always gather together in the locker room and we would have discussions. You know, the things guys talk about in locker rooms. Uh, the existence of God, uh, how you know he's there, and then what he's like. And so we would, all of us, start throwing out our ideas. And everyone was all over the map with this. Nobody seemed to have a settled sense of who God was. Uh, we had one guy who was our resident agnostic who loved Bertrand Russell and was constantly trying to get us to read why I'm not a Christian, and he would present his view. We had another guy who had grown up with no religious background and had kind of picked up what he called Buddhism, but I'm not even really sure it was that, and he was kind of combining elements of different religions and saying, this seems to me the best fit. We had another guy who was a Muslim, nominally probably, but he was from the, a Muslim background, and he said, God is Allah, you know him through the Quran. We had another dude who, he grew up in the church. He, he at least knew the stories of the Bible, but then one night at 3 a.m. while he was watching TV on a Friday night, he saw a movie that told him that the church was lying to him, and that what we know about God, really, it's just their invention, and so you can't trust them. And so he decided that that movie was more trustworthy than his church, and he was also kind of creating his own thing. And then there was me, the guy who thought he was a Christian but really wasn't, who was trying to articulate a worldview that he didn't really yet believe. And so what ended up happening was is all of us just kind of sat in this room, threw things in the center, and left very confused. Nobody knew what was going on. And when I think back on, on those moments, uh, what happened in that locker room is kind of a micro picture of what is happening at a macro level in our world. Uh, because we live in a world where all of us, we are finite people who are blinded by sin, and all of us are trying to figure out who is God and what is he like. And everybody has different ideas. Uh, some of us think there are many gods, others think there's only one. Uh, some of us think that he's a she and others think he's a monkey. Everybody has some different sense of what God is supposed to be. And the question that's running around is how can any of us actually know? And the story that we like to tell is this one. There's an elephant in a field and there's a bunch of blind men and every one of them represents one of the religions or one of the worldviews in the world. And all of them are coming up to this elephant and they are blindly feeling a certain part of it. One guy's got the trunk, he's got his hands wrapped around it, he's smelling it, feeling it, the trunk is, you know, moving up and down. Another guy has got the elephant's foot and he's kind of sniffing it and feeling, you know, the, the contours of the leg and he's trying to describe it to his friends. And then there's some poor guy who, for some reason, got the tail, and he's smelling that and wishing he hadn't, and he is in the place that no one wants to be, and he's trying to describe what he's seen. And the point of the story is just this. It's that nobody really knows 
We're all blind men feeling an elephant and nobody really has a handle on the truth. And the only way we could know, the only way anyone could really see is if somebody came from the outside. Somebody who could see. Somebody who, unlike us, was not blind. The writer of Hebrews says, that one has come. Because the one who has come, this son, who is he? He's not a man, or mere man. He's not somebody who is just like us, trying to feel his way towards God. He's not somebody who's formulated some opinion or some idea. No, he says, this Jesus... He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact, the exact, not partial, not incomplete, the exact imprint of his nature. He says this Jesus, he is not just the one who sees and has come to tell us what he has seen, he is the thing itself. And before you think that this is just something that the writer of Hebrews made up and then imposed on Jesus... This is exactly what Jesus himself says in the book of John. In John 14, Jesus says, Anyone who has seen me, anyone who has looked on me, anyone who has heard my voice, anyone who has seen the things that I do, you have seen the Father. There is no distinction. There is no separation. Because as Jesus says in John 10.30, I and the Father, we are one. When you see me, you see God. That's a radical claim. He is saying that the word that was in the beginning, the word that was with God, the word that was God, as it says in John 1, that that word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And here's the beauty of the gospel. God has come into a world full of blind men who cannot see. And he has placed himself into our hands in a form we could comprehend so that those who could not know God on their own, those who could not even imagine what he was like on their own, could actually feel him and know him and experience him and know that he is true. As one of the greatest theologians in church history wrote, Athanasius, he said, God in love, God in love, made himself an object for the senses so that those who were seeking God in sensible things might apprehend the Father through the works which he, the word of God, did in the body. He's saying, here's the reality of Jesus. If you want to know who God is, you need look no further than his son. If you want to know what God is like, you need look no further than the son. You can no more separate the Son from the Father, then you can separate the brightness of a light from the light itself. Here's why you listen. It is because when Jesus speaks, he doesn't speak as a man trying to tell you what he's discovered about God. He speaks as God himself declaring who he is. You listen because this Jesus He has come in a form that you can comprehend and you can grasp so that you and I would know Not in part, not in some little way, but in full, who God is. And I know in this room, there are some of you, there are some of you who sit there and go, you know what, I just, 
I don't know if God could love me. I don't know if he could forgive me. I don't know if he could care for me. When I think of God, I think of somebody who is angry and who is bitter and who is coming to destroy me. And so I'm just going to hide away and live my life now and escape because I can't imagine a God who is good. What Jesus says to you is, look at me. If you want to know the heart of God, if you want to know the desires of God, you look no further than the Son of God. You look no further than the one who says to the adulterous woman, daughter, your sins are forgiven. You look no further than the one who says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You look no further than the one who says, I show my love for you in this, in that while you were still sinners, I died for you. Here is the one we hear. He is not just the Son of God, he is the very glory of God. And lastly, he's this. He is God's agent of creation. The writer of Hebrews says, He is the one through whom also he created the world, and he is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Those are big words. Because here's what he's saying. He's saying this world that you inhabit, it's not a world that just stumbled into existence by chance. It's not a world that is run by your opinions, your desires, or your whims. It's not one governed by whatever rules you create. He says, no, this world, this is Jesus' world. It's the world that by a word he created. And it is the world by a word that he sustains. And it's a reality that we bump into in Mark 4. You know, I, I wonder sometimes what it would have been like to be a disciple. To be walking with Jesus and to be lured into this complacency because of how utterly human he is. He's eating with them. He's laughing with them. He's tired when they're tired. He's hungry when they're hungry. He gets sick. He gets hurt. He gets wounded. And in every way, he seems just like you. And then in a moment, in a moment, to have that veil lift. And to realize the one who has been with you for three years, the one who is so utterly human, he is also the transcendent holy God. Mark 4 is a moment like that. Jesus and his disciples have just gotten into a boat to go across the sea, and Jesus is so physically tired, he's so exhausted, that he has fallen asleep in the bow of the boat. Uh, he's like the guy who's just gotten done with an 18-hour shift where his kids could literally come and dance on his head and he's not going to wake up. And as they're going across this sea, all of a sudden a storm comes. And not just a little storm, not some rain here and some wind there, but apparently it is such a desperate storm that even the disciples who are fishermen, professional fishermen, who have grown up on this sea, they're panicking. The waves are crashing, the wind is howling, the rain is falling, and they're trying to bail the boat out, and they are convinced they are sinking. And so they go to Jesus, and they shake him awake, and they say, Teacher, do you not care? Don't you care that we are perishing? Literally in the Greek it is, we are dying. Do something. And Jesus stands up, and he wipes the sleep from his eyes. And he looks at the wind and the waves and he says, peace be still. And the waves that were crashing and the wind that was howling and the rain that was falling 
all of it stops. And the very next verse says, and the disciples were greatly afraid. And they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Because they knew that creation only responds that way to one voice. And that is the voice of its creator. Here's why we listen to Jesus. Because the world that we inhabit is not a world that has any mysteries to him. There is not a cell or an atom with which he is not intimately familiar because he is the one who made them. And at this very moment, he is the one who sustains them. The reason that you have breath in your lungs, the reason this morning that you woke up and your heart was still beating, the reason you still had life, it is because Jesus at this moment sustains it. The reason this world operates the way it does and runs the way it does, the reason it has form and shape and is not just chaos is because Jesus made it that way. Which means this. If we are asking how we should live our lives, if we are asking what is the thing for which I was made, if we are asking where is it that I can find life, there is only one voice that we should be listening to. It's not our own. It's not what anyone else around us in the world is telling us. It's the voice of the one who made us and made us for himself. Because who determines the purpose of a thing? It's not the object. Rather, it is the one who made it. And who knows how that object was designed to work? It's not the object. It's the one who made it. The writer of Hebrews says, this is one you have to hear because he is the one who not only made you, not only sustains you, he made you for himself. And you will find life in no other voice. But there's also this. If the one who is the creator and sustainer of all things, if he speaks, that means something momentous is happening. Because if this is the one who by a word created the heavens and the earth, if this is the one who by a word upholds the universe, then when he speaks, it's not a lifeless word. It's not a dead word. It is a word that transforms anyone who hears it. It is a word that takes reality and reshapes it and reframes it and reorients it. It is a world-transforming word. And it's a word that we have to hear, and when we hear it, we have to ask, what is Jesus saying? What is God's Son, the glory of God, the creator of all things, what is he saying? What the writer of Hebrews says, it is very simply this. From beginning to end, it is grace. As he says in Hebrews 2, it is a great salvation that we cannot afford to ignore. It is a salvation that we cannot afford to turn away from, one that we have to grab a hold of with all that we have and all that we are because of the one who speaks it. Matthew 21 tells us two things. The first is that our sin is greater than we ever imagined. 
Because when God sent his messengers and he came to us and said, here is who I am, here is what is true, we sent them away with bruises and we sent them away in a body bag. And in every way, we revealed ourselves to be people who despite all of our words and all our profession of love, we did not love him, we did not want him, we did not care for him. And then when God sent the one who was most precious of all, the one who of all deserved our attention more than any other, the one that the Father said, this one they will respect because he is my son. When he came, what did we do? We took God's son, the very glory of God, the one who created us, and we joined our hands with the tenants, and we walked him out of the city, and we crucified him. And Jesus' question at the end of that parable, it comes back to us, doesn't it? If this is what the tenants have done, what should the landlord do? There's only one response to that. But here's where Matthew 21 offers us hope. It's that it doesn't just speak. It doesn't just speak of our sin. It speaks of God's grace. Because who is this father? He is the one who in the face of all logic, in the face of all sin, in the face of all of our rebellion and all of our hate, he did not stop speaking. He sent messenger after messenger after messenger after messenger and he never stops sending them because his is a heart that beats with a love that is unlike anything we know in this world. And when we would not hear his prophets, he sent us his son. The most precious of all. The last of all. And here's where Hebrews, to me, becomes absolutely glorious. What he's saying in Hebrews 1 is this Jesus, this one that we tried to silence, this one whose voice we did not want to hear, God raised him. And he is still speaking. That that day of judgment that we all deserve, the day of judgment that should have been sent with the first messenger or the second messenger, the third messenger, it is still not here. And what this son speaks, what he says, it is this. It is that God, our greatest act of sin, has become God's greatest gift of mercy. It is at the very place, the cross, where the ugliness of our hearts is brutally exposed. It is also the place where the beautiful, glorious, compassionate heart of God is gloriously displayed. What he says is that the ones who killed the heir, they can now become God's heirs if they come to Christ. What he says is that the ones who killed God's sons, they can become God's sons and daughters if they will come to Christ. He speaks and he says, come to me. Don't listen to any other voice. Don't heed any other call. There is life only in one and it is myself. It is a voice that from beginning to end proclaims grace and a grace abounding and unimaginable and glorious in every way. If you ever go into the cockpit of a plane, there are a sea of dials that are spread out across the cockpit. And if you're like me, I don't know what any of them do except for one. 
there is one dial that I am absolutely certain of what it does, and I thank God that the pilot knows what it is too. It's this little dial called the attitude indicator. Not altitude indicator, the attitude indicator. It is a circle that right down the middle has a line. And below the line, it's brown, and above the line, it's blue. And when the plane is at rest, there's a dot right in the center. When the plane's nose rises, the dot rises into the blue. When the plane's nose dives, that dot drops into the brown. And what every pilot is told is that when you are flying the plane, there are going to be moments when what you see outside of those windows, it is going to become confusing. You're not going to be sure which way is up and which way is down. You're not going to be sure what is true and what is false. And your eyes are going to deceive you. And you are going to wonder which way you should go. And when that moment comes, they are told this. You fly not by what your eyes see outside of that window. You fly based on what you see on the attitude indicator. Because it is the only thing that is true. And it is the only thing that will keep you alive. In this world of competing voices, in this world where truth seems like something that is beyond us, something we cannot get a hold of, something we cannot find, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the attitude indicator of our souls. Jesus is the one who does not just speak the truth, he is the truth. Who is more glorious than we could imagine, who is bigger than we could conceive, and this Jesus this Jesus, he speaks to us. And what he says is, come to me. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, you who are burdened. Come to me, you who are broken. Come to me, you who cannot live life on your own, and you will find it in me. Today, today, not yesterday, not tomorrow. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. This Jesus calls for you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, Lord, I pray now, Lord, that in every way you would tune our hearts to hear your voice. Lord, I pray that you would cut through all the clatter, all the chaos, all the noise, all the competing voices that tell us where truth is found. And Lord, I pray in every way you would bring us to rest at your feet, that, Lord, you would not let us leave this room trusting in any other, but, Lord, instead we would come to the one who is the attitude indicator of our souls. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.